from Emerson. Let us learn the revelation of all nature and thought, that the highest dwells within us, that the sources of nature are in our own minds. There's a deep power in which we exist and whose beatitude is accessible to us. It comes to the lowly and simple. It comes to whosoever will put off what is foreign and proud. It comes as insight. It comes as serenity. It comes as grandeur. And the soul's health consists in the fullness of its reception. When I started to explore the theme of possibility in this moment for this month's Soul Matters theme. You know, I had the, I had the words down. I'm like, okay, possibility. I can get into that. Okay, let's go find some good quotes. Let's go find some good stories, some good music. And, and as the process unfolded, I realized we really needed to offer, well, something more of the experience. And I didn't know that I needed Emerson until I read a little Emerson here. Let us learn the revelation of all nature and thought. And to get back in touch with not just the idea of possibility, but the experience of it. And in order to help fostered that experience, I thought we'd take a cue from the story offered today of the seeds and go into where, where might possibility come from? Where might we find possibility in our background in Unitarian Universalism? And so I brought out the big guns of the transcendentalists because, because they really commit to possibility, to emergence, to the experience of the wonder and awe that is all around us and that resides within us, that fostering, that deep, eternal, internal seed that connects with everything. How can we not hang out with the transcendentalists for this one? So what's ended up being kind of a two-part series for this message. One was, is today with a little bit of the origins of possibility, one of the origin stories in our Unitarian Universalist experience. And then next week will be kind of some of the application, the more modern application of it. So stay tuned, come next week. Emerson's Oversoul really invokes that one of the many ways he talked about that experience and just that being drawn into, out of one's own self and into the world. It is also fitting uh, that I think it's today. Today, in fact, is the anniversary of the first meeting of the Transcendental Club 185 years ago. That first meeting. I think was today. So let me offer a little about the basics of this transcendentalist movement. So at the time, 185 years ago, the early part of the 1800s, you had the Unitarians who were emerging and establishing 
um, as an institution, as becoming more legitimate as a recognized theology. William Ellery Channing in 1819 at the ordination sermon of Jared Sparks had taken um, the word Unitarian, which had been a, something of a, of a pejorative, and had really claimed it as Unitarian Christianity, saying we are about understanding the Bible with reason and thought as well as inspiration. And the story that we see, the narrative we see, is that Jesus is the fabulous, wonderful teacher, but Jesus is not God. The Unitarian is the one that the one that the holy is one and not in three parts. So this was exciting by itself. But then people kept innovating. People kept going with this idea of exploration and the new German examination of scripture and, and also understanding that there's not just tradition, but there's also intuition and one's own, not just reason, but one's own experience. And so here was this emerging group talking about the direct experience of wonder, the individual encounter with awe and with the universe. You know, there's Emerson uh, talking about being a transparent eyeball. I love that from high school, the image of, of this long-legged, this long-legged creature in, in, in the dress of the 1800s with even a top hat, but being all transparent eyeball experiencing directly the world. It was a stunning, truly a stunning vision of the natural world of all that is. And these transcendentalists were continuing that thought. Uh, they were like, no, we don't necessarily even need scripture or Jesus. Ooh, that got them into trouble. These conventional Unitarians were like, they were hoping to establish themselves. They had been establishing themselves at Harvard Divinity School and in other ways, uh, certainly were the dominant social presence, religious and social presence in Boston and New England. And so these, these hippies, these transcendentalist hippies were causing a whole lot of problem and denying reason as far as they were concerned. From the Universalist World article by Jeff Wilson, talks about the book um, American Transcendentalism, A History by Philip Guerra, summarizes this. The most important of these ideas, he says, which became the central tenet of the rising transcendentalist cadre, was that human beings contained within themselves a mysterious internal principle that guided them toward religious truth, an intuitive capacity more profound and reliable than scriptures, than ecclesiastical institutions or tradition. This spiritual sixth sense pointed toward transcendental truths, such as the universal uh, humanity of all people, the universal kinship of all people, the ability of the human individual to commune directly with the divine, and the presence of the sacred and the manifestations of the natural world. I mean, this is what, what the transcendentalists were, were about. I mean, within them, there were two paths, and we need to talk about those two paths to understand some of this implications. So there was the self-culture, that was one path, and the social reform, that was the other path. So self-culture and social reform. 
Now, the self-culture, and Emerson was big in the self-culture piece of this, that you, you really dedicate your life and practice and focus on kind of connecting with the intuitive and keep furthering one's own spiritual experience and kind of shed the physical whenever possible. He said, you know, we, there's nobody who can do it perfectly, but you're shedding the world all the time to really truly fully connect with the spiritual and to trust in our own internal and personal capacity for aspiration. You know, this is also that, that self-reliance was, came out of this. You're really deeply engaged with the self. And because every self was recognized, every person has this capacity, this meant that there was radical equality, too. Ooh, that shook up the 1800s as well. You know, for women and for everyone, whatever color, whatever race. I mean, they're causing trouble. There was this inherent worth, and that folks who were enlightened could come together and bring this understanding of this inherent worth and this capacity of our human ability and transform the world. Now, the other part, so that was the self-culture. Self-culture, self and the other part was the social reform. And the social reform really focused on the uh, taking the, um, that also that understanding of everybody is, has inherent worth and really focus on the doing of the transformation of society in very practical terms, you know, particularly in this case, the abolition of slavery, uh, led by those um, at the center of which was folks such as Theodore Parker, also Unitarian minister in the Boston area. Now, each of these, the self-culture and the social reform, each of them had their problems. So let me just tell you, these seeds were not just like all sunshine and light. They each had their challenges. The self-culture could be so focused on the individual, so, so self-enlightened, if you will, that their purpose could ultimately result in kind of ignoring the world and simply focusing on one's own cosmic navel-gazing and hyper-focus on the individual. And there's also running the risk that the presumption that these enlightened folks know best for everybody else. So that was a challenge with the self-reliance piece, the self-culture. The social reform also had a problem, which is if you're all about the works, whatever the reason for the works in the first place, you can lose the, the, the spiritual grounding of that, lose the seed, if you will. But with these, knowing that there are these cautions and knowing that the, I think what's happened is that when they work best together, when they balance each other out, then truly powerful, wonderful things can happen. Now what happened with the transcendentalist movement per se is is one, that you had some who got truly so self-focused or truly so spiritual that they just didn't engage in the world as much. But the other is that so many of them truly did turn to works and made the effort to 
um, and the, the, the enormous effort that was going on at that time of the abolition of slavery and how that turned the whole country upside down. And ultimately, um, uh, part, of what, uh, part of what works with the, uh, the self-reliance element is also trusting in the inherent goodness and the conflict around the Civil War and how people treated each other in the course of that really disillusioned the human goodness element as well, kind of took, took the energy out of that, made folks who were focused on the human goodness seem naive and irrelevant. But even though the movement really ended as a movement before, right around the Civil War, those seeds that were planted continued. And so we have that self-reliance that unfortunately kind of got into the American subculture of um, I'm going to take care of me and mine, which we're seeing some of the resonance of that oh today um, with how we're struggling with public health, for example. But what's also carried forth is that inherent worth, is that understanding that each of us is powerful and precious and need a voice and need to be respected and that we can do better when we do that effort with each other. You know, we've had the hazard of swinging into a lot of individual freedom. Um, Elizabeth Peabody, in the time of the Transcendentalist Club, described the possibility of hyper-individualism as ego-theism. Ego-theism, the god of my own self, high. Right. But what Emerson and others also tapped into was that recognition of being in amongst the universe, of having that direct experience with the holy, and how powerful that can be in transforming ourselves, in, our, in humbling ourselves, in empowering ourselves, and then going forth out in the world. As Emerson says, within us is the soul of the whole, the wise silence, the universal beauty to which every part and particle is equally related, the eternal one. When it breaks through our intellect, it is genius. When it breathes through our will, it is virtue. And when it flows through our affections, it is love. We are so touched by this glorious potential and possibility, as named by Emerson and so many more. We have received this legacy through the years, and we can bring it forth out into the world. So I want to offer that this can be our, the beginning of our gift and recognizing that possibility that is within each and every one of us and how when our possibilities come together, we are truly powerful and able to help heal the world. Let us take up that call. And 